everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. I am your host, Dave Stovall. Thanks so much for joining me today for this episode. We are continuing to work our way through the track sessions from last year's National Disciple Making Forum. Today's episode features again the Bonhoeffer Project. This is part two of their track sessions at the forum. And it's got Dan Lights talking to us about what's in your bucket. He goes into detail about what it looks like to be a program church shifting over to a church that is about true discipleship. And they really get into the weeds about what the gospel is, how to preach the gospel. Are we actually discipling people with the real gospel? Or are we just discipling them in programs, but calling it discipleship? Really important episode here. All right, I'm going to stop rambling. This is Dan Lights and the Bonhoeffer Project. Here we go. Welcome to uh, track two here at the Bonhoeffer Project. Um, just wanted to kind of give you a little bit of intro. Uh, my name is Dan Lights. I am the current uh, CEO of the Bonhoeffer Project. Uh, Bill Hull, who has led this organization, founder of this organization, um, stepped down just recently, not because he's going anywhere. He's just doing other stuff now and wanted to kind of pass the baton in, in, in his timing. Uh, he was supposed to be here this week. But uh, as it would have, uh, he booked American Airlines, and I don't know if you've been hearing about what's going on with the airlines. Uh, he didn't make it uh, because Air American Airlines go ahead and canceled his flight. And so uh, he didn't make it, so uh, we're bummed that he's not with us. But uh, nonetheless, uh, here we go. We're going to be talking about what is in your bucket. Now, before we dive into that, make sure you guys fill out one of those cards. We do have some giveaways that we're going to do at the end. If you have not filled out one of those, make sure you do it before we do the giveaway at the end. We're gonna, I'm going to just give a, a short kind of teaching on uh, this, this subject, what's in your bucket. Then I'm going to have a panel come up, and we're going to talk about some of the things that we discussed here. And then after that, we will have time for Q&A. One of the questions that does come up, and I'm going to just kind of prime the pump, let you guys know what's going to happen. Some of you are going to ask, what is the Bonhoeffer Project? What do you do, right? Don't worry. We will get to that. Uh, just so everybody knows, uh, the Bonhoeffer Project is named after Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, you, you've seen kind of what we've, uh, even in the intro video in the main session, we saw a couple of photos. He was a martyr for the faith, uh, killed by Hitler in Nazi Germany, uh, sent to the gulags, then hung, naked, burned, thrown into a ditch. Um, but if you read his book, The Cost of Discipleship, it is a gut punch of a book. But it brings me to this What's in your bucket? And before we dive into that, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to govern our time. Father, thank you that you are good, that you are gracious, and that you continue to lead us and guide us. Lord, even in the midst of error or wrong thinking, God, you still are kind, you're gentle, you're merciful, you're gracious to bring us back to right the ship, as it were, God, to put us in the right direction, to get us focused back on what your church is supposed to be doing. So God, for those who are here, who have given up their time, their resources, their energy to be here today, God, I pray that you would bless them. You'd meet them exactly where they're at. And God, you would um, reveal that to them today, God, the reason why we do what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7 with me? Um, you know, obviously, we're here because we love Jesus, and I think it's important that we always start with prayer and, and, and glean what we can from the word of God. 
John chapter 7 is, is very famous, and uh, what we're going to cover is a uh, really awesome section of Scripture, but it leads into kind of this idea of the bucket. John chapter 7, verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come after me. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of you are here this week for these next two days and you have that living water flowing out of your life. But the reason that you've come to this conference is because you've recognized that there may be some lack of that living water flowing out of your churches. There may be a lack of living water flowing out of your ministries. What you want to see happening is not happening the way you'd like to see it. There is what we've called, and you've probably heard this before, there's a healthy, biblical, God-fearing discontentment that has been brought in your life. It's what we talked about in our last session. There's a pebble in your shoe, a discontentment, something that's annoying, something that needs to be fixed. What I want to do for you today is paint a picture that was coined, and I'm just going to say by the Holy Spirit, because everybody's fought over who actually came up with this. So in our organization, we all know that just Jesus came up with this. Y'all have in your hands a bucket. Now, yours is a little smaller than mine. Again, just the idea is a visual of a bucket. One of the things that really struck me, and I, I spoke about this in the last session, for those of you that don't know, it was two years ago at this very conference that the Lord in that healthy discontentment rooted out of me this idea that I was not making disciples, that I was a pastor of a large church and not making disciples. That was not fun. But the reason that this bucket is so prominent in this study or in what we're talking about is because what happened here at this conference two years ago will forever change how I look at making disciples. Because it's not just about kind of this rubber stamp that we put on. I would have loved, loved if Jesus would have told us as soon as you make a disciple, a big D shows up on their forehead so that we'll know, right? So we can walk around, oh, there's one, yep, you, all right, yeah, all right. Ooh, that's a, kind of a, it's a faded D. What's happened to you? Are you backsliding, right? There'd just be some sort of outward, tattooistic, <laughs> some sort of identifier in the physical that we could see that made us easily able to identify. I'd love a badge, right? You finish, you get a badge, you can flash your badge, you go, yeah, man. We do this, and we've seen this all happen, right? Have you ever been in a conversation, and you talk to someone, and then you kind of hear a word that's like church-esque? It's a churchianity word, right? It's part of the lingo, and somebody says it, and you're like, oh, I just heard them say that word. They said fellowship. No one says fellowship unless they're from church. And you said, so are you, you know, you know. Right, and you find out, oh, me too. Right, then it comes out, oh, I'm a Christian, yes. But we keep that hidden. The idea being that the thing that changed my heart about disciple making was really the understanding of the gospel. 
And let me help you understand that. What, one of the things the Bonhoeffer Project does, and it was the thing that, that I'm telling you messed me up in such a good way. It's a phrase I say, it hurts so good. There's a phrase, and you see it on the banner before you come into this room, and it says, the gospel you preach or the gospel you proclaim determines the disciple you make. When I heard that phrase, I started to, like my mind started to wrestle. What do you mean? Of course I'm preaching the right gospel. But as I said in the last session, if I went around here to everyone in the room and I gave each one of you a three by five card and I said, I want you to write down on this card the definition of the gospel. If I gathered all of those up and held them in my hand afterwards, how many think that 50% of them would be the same? 25, 10, right? Because we all have a general idea. We all have a somewhat of an idea, and I think we've got all different parts of it, but it wasn't until I realized that the disciple is only going to flow from the gospel. So this idea, think of a river. For, for many of you, you've come to this conference with a mindset of, I know we need to make disciples. Whether it's a church context, your senior pastor, whether it's a ministry context, whether it's a business context, or even personal context, you recognize something is off and we need to fix it. So in most church contexts, what, what we do is, the, the idea is you're going down to the end of the river, you're scooping up some of the water and you're recognizing it's not producing what you want it to produce. The, the water is not clean and clear. The water is muddy, it's murky, maybe it's just got some, some funky smell to it. You're like, ah, the river of my ministry is not producing what I need it to produce. And so what you do is you go to the latest conference. You show up to the latest conference. You read the latest book. You read that great book on leadership, that one guy on how to grow your church in three easy steps. You read that book and you're like, I know what we need to do, guys. And you go back to your team with this beautiful bucket of fresh water. And you take it to your stream and you run upstream a little bit. And you dump it in. Then you run back downstream and you test the water again. And what you'll find is at the bottom of the water, guess what? The water is still dirty. And so what you end up doing is you, as a minister, or as someone who is trying to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're constantly bailing out the bad water and trying to pour good in. Our contention is that the reason that water is dirty and will never get clean is because you have to go to the source of the river. The source of the river of ministry, the source of the river of discipleship is always going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless you understand that, listen, it's something that I, I kind of, I say often now. If you make churches, if you're a church planter, and again, church planters love you. If you build churches, you may make some disciples through church planting. If you make disciples, you'll always get churches. The thing is, in our churches, in our ministries, we have tried to, and what we've done is we've produced through our flesh, our works, the effects of discipleship. We produce ministries. Ministries come from disciples. And so without disciples, we're just producing the effects of discipleship. We need to go back to the source and produce the disciples that produce the effects called the ministry. But all that to say is the gospel is the core of what we do. Now, some of you are even here saying what I said. Wait a second, are you telling me there's other gospels? 
Well, we know that. Jesus even told us there's going to be false Christs, there's false gospels. There's going to be people that are going to try to sway you from the truth. We understand that that's part of living in this world. Even what we heard this morning, I think it was, uh, I don't know, it might have been Bobby, but he was saying, or I think it was Jim, he was saying, you know, Christ church, the, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it, but are you his church? It depends on what gospel you are preaching. And again, I'm leaving this purposefully a little bit ambiguous for you because one of the things we do in the Bonhoeffer Project is we examine the false and the incomplete gospels that are pervasive in the American context. Now, again, I'll say they are pervasive across the globe, but specifically for my context, it was the American evangelical church. There's a lot of partial gospels being preached out there, a lot of things that are going to look at, and you look at, they're, they're close, They've got most of it. I mean, how many of you ever heard that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? And that's the gospel. Is that the gospel? That's part of it. I told my, my congregation a couple of months ago, I said, Jesus didn't just die on the cross so you could go to heaven. I got some emails. I got a lot of emails. Because the American gospel, the version that we hear is, Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you could go to heaven. Who in any church does not hear who wants to be forgiven and doesn't want to answer that one in the positive, in the affirmative. I want to be forgiven. Who wants to go? Ahead? Yeah, I want to go to heaven. Who doesn't want to go to heaven? But what is the gospel according to Jesus Christ? What is the gospel that he preached? See, the thing is we can do these things and we can go to these conferences and we can get the latest and we can get the newest and we can get the strategies and we can get all of this up into our head, but to be honest with you, all we're doing is we're creating programs. We're creating disenfranchised people who are excited about the newest thing, but once the excitement's worn off, there's nothing left. There's no content, there's no, uh, there's no glue, there's no stickiness that keeps them adhered to what it is. It's because the gospel hasn't changed their heart. The gospel has not permeated their life. You're here most likely because you have taken some sort of spiritual inventory of your church your team, your ministry. Maybe you've recognized that something isn't right. Maybe you keep bailing out water. You're trying to find something new. What is it? What is it that I need to do? And I'm telling you right now, it starts, listen to me. If you hear anything that anybody says this week, listen to this. It starts with the gospel. You have to go upstream because if, and I said this last session, I'll say it again. Every church makes disciples. Every single church makes disciples. Of what is the question? What are you making disciples of? Are you making disciples of your pastor? Are you making disciples of the movement, your tribe? Are you making disciples of your methodologies, your philosophies of ministry? Are you making disciples of your building style, your worship style, your preaching style? What are you making a disciple of? If it is not Jesus Christ, it is a false or it is an incomplete gospel. This is why it is so important when it comes to discipleship that we're not just taking a Band-Aid and throwing it onto a gaping wound. We must repair the damage that has been done by false, misleading, or incomplete gospels. Right now, what I want to do is I want to have a panel of uh, men come up. These are uh, current pastors, former pastors. They're all pastors in my mind. Um, they all minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do is I'm going to, I, I'm going to float some questions to these guys. There will be some time for questions after this. 
but it really drives to this basic understanding of why is it so important that we get the gospel right. So I didn't introduce him last time, so shame on me. Uh, here, immediately to my left, your right, this is Stephen Kimbrell. He's the pastor of Grace City Church in Irvine, California. So we're, we're kind of neighbors. We're about uh, 40, 50 miles from one another. Uh, Denny Heiberg, he oversees a lot of our international work in the Bonhoeffer Project. And Jim Thomas, he's the pastor of a church that's been around for 190 92. 192 years. Now, he's not 192 years old, but Good. the church that he ministers at has been around that long, right? Yeah. My church has been around for about 35, yeah. so just to put that in perspective. A um, couple of questions that I want to ask you guys, and, and again, you can answer it as you want. I can just pass the mic down. What are some signs in your ministry context that your water is polluted or dirty? What, what would you say that are some of the things that... Maybe people here even recognize, or you recognize when you recognize that that water's dirty. Well, I'm going to mix metaphors a little bit. So um, I think one of the, the biblical signs of dirty water is fruitlessness. I think if you're looking at your congregation and you're seeing a bunch of well-churched people who don't follow Jesus, you have dirty water. Uh, I was at a different conference. I came to the church I currently serve uh, almost 10 years ago, and so... I took our staff to a different conference, and one of the things that the main stage speaker said, or asked the question, he says, what breaks your heart for the local church? And immediately the spirit resonated in me, churches full of undiscipled Christians. And so we went to lunch that day, and we, I threw that question back out to my team, and they responded to that. And when I shared my, my, my response, they agreed with me, and it set us on a new journey over the last 10 years to correct that issue in the life of the church we had dirty water we had believers who had prayed a prayer to go to heaven whether it be a year ago or literally 60 or 70 years ago and people had told them that's all they needed to do and so they made up their christianity beyond that whether it be attending programs whether it be showing up at worship service and then you know the scorecard changed then uh, because pastors then started to say well then success in ministry is about nickels and noses it's about how many people show up and how much money we get. And I can go before the Lord. I, folks, I really believe when I stand before the Lord, he's not going to ask me how many I had on Easter Sunday in a given year. I think he's going to ask me, did you do what I asked you to do? Are you making disciples? And I think fruitlessness is a key for that because I see people who are not growing in Christ-like character. We don't see Galatians 5 being lived out in their lives. And as a result of that, we don't see them impacting others. The church, therefore, becomes a consumerist entity, a spiritual Walmart, if you will, where I show up and the church exists for me. I no longer exist for the church. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. I fully agree with all that Jim has said. And let me give you a little context uh, before I share with you my response. Uh, I've been in a denomination uh, as an ordained pastor, ordained elder in, the, in our tribe is what we call ourselves, and uh, for about 30 years. And for 22 of those years, I pastored a local church. But as Dan referred to briefly here, I, I've now had the privilege of working with a mission sending organization uh, that sends our cross-cultural workers all around the globe. And my wife and I focus on uh, discipleship training uh, coming along and enhancing what they've already learned, but the reality is that most people that come out of a North American church have never been discipled. The majority have never been discipled. So we get a chance to, to work with them before they go 
uh, into the, their field, ministry field context. So, saying all that, uh, I was in my third week at the last church I served. I was there for 18 years. I was, it was the, the third Monday, so I preached three times. And the woman that was responsible for uh, personnel, hiring and so forth, she was the head of the committee. She came up to me, and I could take you to the place on the carpet where I was standing when she asked me this. You ever had one of those moments that you could take somebody to? It was so vivid. And she said, Denny, I've heard you preach three weeks now, and I know you believe what you preach, but what is this Jesus is Lord business? I think the water was dirty. It's just a guess. (laughs) This woman had been raised in this denomination. If you went to our website, here's what it would say. The denominational website would say, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. I'll give you a hint. Uh, You ever heard of John Wesley? Yeah. All right. He didn't start the Methodist church. He didn't want to start any other church. He wanted to bring life to the Anglican church, but that was the result of his ministry of the movement. If anybody should be leading this movement, it should be the United Methodist Church or the Methodist movement. But I began to realize that I had inherited, because I was sent to the church, and our system were sent, and I was sent to a church that was full of folks that Jim just described, except for a few that were committed and core, and they were longing for the gospel and the reason why we make disciples, because that's the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Not only repenting and not only believing in the gospel, but following him. And so I'll even tell you the town. I was in a, a town in North Florida that had a a sports culture. I don't know if any of you come from university settings, but uh, at the University of Florida, there were people that gave their allegiance. They swore their allegiance to the Gator Nation. And can I say it this way? I, I discovered that it was even higher than their allegiance to Jesus. Now, I don't think that's the only city in the country that has that problem. But I realized that we were, we had some dirty water and we had to go back to the, the headwaters of the gospel. Now the Bonhoeffer Project wasn't available back then, but fortunately uh, in my training I had been given enough insights and wrestled with it enough to know that it, that it all started with the gospel. So that's my response. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, I'll just add to that that um, you know, you know you've got dirty water if your people can't uh, define what the gospel is. And I think, I think the gospel is one of those words we all like to say it in Christian circles. We all shake our heads like amen, brother, and we all mean different things. It's kind of like the word barbecue, you know. Um, <laughs> I grew up in the south in Alabama, so when I think of barbecue, I think of pulled pork, you know, with barbecue sauce on top. And then I moved to North Carolina, North Carolina no. eastern North Carolina, and they've got vinegar on the stuff. And, uh, and now I live in California, and so when I say barbecue, my church thinks about either an event or Korean barbecue, and so it's just really confusing word, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I think the gospel is that way a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that we do in the Bonhoeffer Project that I enjoyed was our very first session, some of the homework was go to your church and at different levels in your congregation, just pull people and ask them, what is the gospel? 
and uh, you'll find most of them will kick it back. People, Pastor, what did you tell me it was? You know, and uh, but have them get you a, give you a written form of communication what the the gospel is without going and googling it, and you'll be shocked at what your people tell you the gospel is. And, and it maybe maybe you have the gospel right, and I really I think we all feel like we do, and I felt like I did. Uh, but maybe the way I was communicating the gospel was getting kind of muddy just because of Christianese or church phrases that I was using. And we had all kinds of different definitions about what the gospel was. And so we had people living it out in different ways. That's, it. That's good. Um, so this is kind of a two-part question, and hopefully you guys can, can answer it uh, kind of succinctly. But what are some of the traditional ways we try to fix the water? And what are the dangers of those ways, uh, the long-term effects or the lack of long-term effects. Who wants to answer that one first? Okay. I've already given you a, a foundation of what I inherited uh, that first year. And so a number of these people began to leave because they were hearing a gospel that they'd never heard before. And they'd say, <laughs> I didn't sign up for that. Because you can, unfortunately, you can walk into a Methodist church on the north side of town and then walk into another one the mid side you know in the middle of town and the south of town you can hear three different gospels but uh they i, I we helped populate other methodist churches by the way <laughs> during those years but but uh now what was the question again <laughs> what are the traditional ways yeah yeah we we got busy we got people busy in ministries in fact at one at one time we we realized that we had 42 different ministries that were not only on our campus, obviously, but in the community. But what happened was I realized that not one of them was intentionally focused on making disciples. And so as a result of that, uh, I had a, a crisis of calling and realized that I needed to be about the priority and make Jesus' final command my, my first responsibility. And so I got involved with a group of men and began to pour into them what the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and other people had been pouring into me through the years. So, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think the way we traditionally try to tackle it is just through adding another group. You know, we, we come to a conference like this and, and we go around and we shop to try to find a silver bullet, right? Uh, we, we get it, you know, give it to us in two days. Uh, we go home uh, for the lead pastor. We hand it off to, to second command. Say, "Hey, make this happen." Our church is not making disciples. We got to do this, and uh, we try to pl the plug and play approach, uh, which um, just really doesn't work. Um, I think we've all been there. We've done that. Uh, we do the program for a year. A year from now, you were saying in the last session, we have a big fanfare. We do it. A year from now, nobody knows what it's about. Uh, what happened to that discipleship thing we're doing? Well, I don't know if Bob's still doing that, and and that's just that's what happens. Daniel M. talks about that in his book, if you guys have read it, No Silver Bullets. Um, you know, a lot of our churches, we don't have discipleship at the core uh, of who we are. It's not the conviction of the pastor. And if it's not the conviction of the pastor, it's, it becomes very difficult for it to permeate the entire church. So it has to be the conviction of, of who we are. And then that goes out into form the culture of the church. And then Daniel M. says those constructs or those programs or the different things that we've put in place to facilitate disciple making in our context actually have a place to land and can begin to take hold and begin to work because it's a part of the culture of what our church does. But I think we, we try to tackle it with another program. 
Well, the first thing I need to do is correct Stephen's gospel of barbecue. Um, <laughs> I serve in the great state of Georgia. Got Georgia in the house, Georgia in the house over there. But I'm from the country of Texas. And, um, and, and the answer is beef. Um, so there you go. In the back of the room, we got carrots and dogs. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. So just to make sure that you have your gospel of barbecue correct. I would say, you know, uh, growing up and being a pastor in the Southern Baptist tribe, the answer for everything is a new program. And uh, if we just add a new program, it's better than the last program, but don't kill the old program because so-and-so is passionate about the old program. It goes back to Denny's ministry idea, just add ministry after ministry after ministry and water down everything we do so everybody is happy. I don't think Jesus ever called everybody to be happy. Uh, he called us to follow him, and sometimes there's not happiness involved. There's great joy involved, but sometimes there's struggle involved in that. Um, and I think when we just start adding program on top of program on top of program, the, the ends that I've seen in my ministry, the end of programs are usually the end of that program. It doesn't point anywhere bigger than that. And I think the answer, the fix to that is twofold. Number one, to go back to the Word of God. Uh, I had a guy come up to me, uh, actually to our discipleship pastor, about three or four years into the process of us changing a 192-year-old culture. Now, y'all have to understand, I'm, I'm in a church just south of Atlanta. We still have in our uh, church minutes what to do if Sherman marches through, okay? So, I mean, that's that's our church, right? And so um, we, we joke we have charter members still. Um, but so, it, you know, you're trying to change a culture that doesn't want to be changed because it's never been changed. And so the best way to do that, so it's not Pastor Jim's opinion or this young guy, thank you for calling me that, but the young guy coming in and changing things is to point them back to what Jesus said. And so we had a guy come up to our discipleship pastor and he said, okay, I've been listening to you guys because we built a team chemistry around a vision toward disciple making. We've been listening to you guys and I want to know this, why are you changing the gospel? And we said, what do you mean by that? He said, I was told, this guy was in his early 80s, still is, uh, 83, 84 now. He said this, he said, he said, I was told 60 years ago if I prayed a prayer, that's all I had to do. Now, I love him. He's growing in his faith. I can tell you some real wins in our ministry and love for this man. But for 40 years in this church, he's been what we call the usual suspect. In any meeting, he's got his hand up. He's got the next gripe, how the leaders aren't doing it right, how back in his day, fill in the blank. We ended up getting him into a discipling relationship with our discipleship pastor. He still loves me for that. Um, <laughs> this man walks in after a year being in that group, and he thought discipleship groups were for him to air his dirty laundry, and we kind of shut that down pretty quick. He walked in a year later, this is what he said, I've got something to say. Now, if you know that person in your church, all the air is sucked out of the room, you know what I'm saying? And he walked in and they go, okay, what do you need to say? He said, I learned this week cry. that I'm supposed to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I've never heard that before. How do I do that? And they said, sit down, let's talk. <laughs> That'll mess you up, man, right? And so I think as we point back to the word of God and give our people a target to pursue other than attending something, then we put them on a pathway towards spiritual maturity and growing in their walk with Christ and the water starts to clear up. Amen. Yeah, good stuff.
stuff. You know, one of the things that I found in my local context was um, uh, once this process had begun, I, I was looking at, uh, we had a group called the Men's Discipleship Group. So I, I got to attend that, see what's going on there. <laughs> you all know what a men's discipleship group looks like? In our context, it was probably about 15, 65, 75 plus men sitting around the table, donuts, coffee, the Bible. And if they got to the Bible, it was a good day. The rest of the time, it was, let's talk, it was politics, it was sports, sports, sports right, talking about, you know, fighting over which barbecue was the best. But that's what it was. And again, it had the name. Right? You could go on the website and be like, well, they got discipleship. Look, it's happening. A pastor can look and say, look, it's here. Look, we got it's even named. But really, it, it's it's non-existent. You can't just slap the, uh, the program on top of it and think it's going to fix it. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community. For disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today. With that said, uh, any questions from you guys before I get into just kind of our final thing? Yeah, in the back. One question regarding the project. Sure. The mission of the church is to make disciples. At the end of the day, that is the job of the church. Right. And we've created parachurch organizations because the church is lacking. Right. So my question is, in terms of, I see the four of y'all up there, probably lead pastors, if you want to call it that. Sure. How would you say Bonhoeffer Project integrates into churches when it's not the lead pastor getting involved? <laughs> because so where the lead pastor goes with the rest of the church. Yeah. How do you... How do you integrate that as a, me as a layperson trying to say, how do I do this in the church? Yeah, I, I wanted to, to help maybe answer that because I said earlier it's really important as a lead pastor gets on board with that. And I do believe that. I believe as a lead pastor, a lead pastor it is our role to get on board with that because that is the mission of the church. But also understand the lead pastor is not on board with it in every case. And so... You know, we don't want you to, to go out of here and say, okay, let's go all charge our lead pastors, find them here at this conference, and bring them back in here, and we'll shame them. That's not what we're trying to do. Um, you know, I've been in several situations working with Bill Hall when he's been asked that same question. He usually kind of pauses. I don't know, maybe it's dramatic effect. Maybe he's really thinking. And, <laughs> you know, Bill. And, and he usually says, um, don't announce the revolution started. And 
And what he means by that is it doesn't always have to come from the top. And um, one of the things, I think the beauty of the Bonhoeffer Project is, is the Bonhoeffer Project is not a plug and play. It's not something just for lead pastors. Um, it's a customized approach for your context. And so whatever your context is, right now I'm leading a cohort. Uh, we have a lady in Korea who's not a lead pastor. We have a gentleman in Texas uh, who's a businessman. And so we have all different types of people in it. And so some of those are building disciple-making plans for their businesses. Some of them, it's for uh, the lady in Korea. It's for uh, people that live in her neighborhood that she knows. Um, and, and then we have youth pastors that are building for their youth ministry. And then we have some that are on staff, and their goal is, okay, I'm going to build this for my ministry that I know I can impact, but I'm also building a plan to try to, to reach the entire church. And sometimes that just starts with a group of men, like we were talking in the hall, a group of men or women who say, we're going to do that. We got four, and we're going to start with four, and, and then we're going to do this together for a year, and then we're going to branch off, and we're going to be eight, and then we're going to keep going that way. And so I, I think the Bonhoeffer Project really fits no matter where you are. Nobody else wants to say something. Yeah, Chris, you have been authorized by the Lord Jesus explicitly to go and make disciples. Now, I think it would be appropriate for you to invite, you know, share that with your your pastor, let's say, that you've been burdened with this, okay? And and just go ahead and, and launch it, like we said. Don't don't announce it, just get get with some brothers. But what we teach you in the in the Bonhoeffer project, we have probably more people that are not on a church staff in any in any position at all that are involved in this. And one of my, my favorite examples is a dear brother of mine back in Gainesville, Florida, who's a pharmacist. And he just got with other men in the community. And for seven years, he's been building uh, disciples in these men. He's had over probably 300 people so far go through his, his plan to make disciples. So uh, you have permission, brother. Amen. Okay? Go on. Yeah, I was a youth pastor for 15 years and an executive pastor for six years before I became a senior pastor, which I didn't want to become because I'd worked with too many of them. And, um, <laughs> and yet God's call is bigger than that, right? And I had to learn to lead up, to lead sideways, and to lead down. And uh, a lot, all the pastors I worked with had no clue about making disciples because they had never been personally discipled. And so discipleship was programmatic for them. Sure, go do a program. I'm fine with that in your context, right? And yet when you start to build biblical disciple making as part of your DNA anywhere in a church, I believe the Holy Spirit's going to get a hold of that. And he's going to start doing some things in and around you that are unexplainable. And unless the senior leader in the church is so clued out to the work of God around them, they're going to see something happening. I just led a, a very large church in Dallas-Fort Worth, their executive staff through this, and had pushback from the senior pastor from the beginning. Like pulled me aside after session one and said, if you don't give me the answer by the end of the day, we're done. No pressure. Yeah. And I came back and it was what Stephen said a few minutes ago. I went back in and I said, there's no silver bullet. Stop looking for the program. Now let's enter into a process of leader formation that leads us to a point where we understand a holistic view of disciple making in the church. And as his team around him started to get it, he leaned in. I'm speaking at that church online next week at their second discipleship conference because they started to put this plan into place and he is totally on board now. 
So that doesn't always happen. We've seen in the Bonhoeffer Project, people leave their churches. We've seen second chair, third chair people leave their churches because they continue to run into the wall and can't get anything done. Now, they were still doing what Denny was just saying in the context of their personal ministry. But ultimately, they saw a roadblock so big that it was never going to... And God opened the door. Never forget talking to a guy walking or uh, talking on his cell phone, walking around the church parking lot, considering quitting. And kind of talking him off the ledge, helping him breathe a little bit. And he eventually did leave that church and went to a disciple-making church that had incredible success though, right? And so I think... I think it is all the above. I think start where you are, start the revolution. Don't you don't have to announce. Even if you're a senior leader, let me encourage you. If you don't have a comprehensive plan, don't go home Sunday and announce a plan that you don't have. That's right. That's dangerous, right? Work the process to make something sustainable over time. That's going to transform the culture of your church. But start where you are. Lead up as best you can. Seek God's will and watch the Spirit. Amen. That's great. We got any more questions? Yes. Um, just curious. If, I mean, reflecting off of Bonhoeffer's life yeah. and the cost of discipleship, mm -hmm. uh, I think you described it as a punch to the gut. That's profound. Yeah. I uh, I live up in the Northeast where I minister, and there's not a church on every corner. <laughs> right. Jesus is really actually a Spanish friend more than he is yes. the savior of the world. Sure. And uh, uh, I, as I began to dive into his his writing on the cost of discipleship and listening to his life, I mean, it, it sounds like the gospel of calling us, obviously, to, to the Via Dolorosa, to Calvary. So am I right in saying that really you're, the Bonhoeffer Project's named after him because you're looking to drill down to that gospel that says it's not here for you, you're here for it. Mm. You're called to Jesus. You're called to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him where you won't want him. As opposed to, or, or just, you know, I mean, that not to, to, to turn it into like the Desert Fathers or, uh, you know, yeah. be monastic about it, but I think the biggest problem with the gospel is, is that we have so many, like the Western, the Western Hemisphere, we don't know what poverty is. The average person lives in a mud hut with a dirt floor. We don't have the first clue of what it is for hunger in our country. And we're trying to ratify and reconcile all of these different expressions of Christianity in the Western world, and the gospel is not a Western no. gospel, it's an Eastern Correct. gospel. And we're trying to find our way back, not to be to make Jesus Western or us to be Eastern, but right. to say, how does Jesus incarnate right. into this sacrificial kind of life? Yeah, and that's it. The, the namesake, the Bonhoeffer Project, comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and really, uh, when he wrote uh, The Cost of Discipleship, I mean, if you read that book, it is a call to death. And, and he experienced that call, right? He got to firsthand experience being a martyr for the faith. And most of us as believers in Christ Jesus, as Lord and Savior, have not counted that cost. We have not counted that cost. I remember beginning of the pandemic when we couldn't meet in our building for, it ended up being about a year for us, People screaming persecution. It's like you, go, you don't know the first thing. Say persecution. We're meeting outside in San Diego in a tent. It was gorgeous. The coldest it ever got was 40 degrees in winter. And the hottest it ever got, I preached from the pulpit, it was 105 degrees. It was not persecution. It wasn't as comfortable as I would like. 
but you can't say in any way, shape, or form that it's persecution. And now we look at elections as persecution. This, it, listen, if this is your idea of persecution, it's going to get real rough for you. It's going to get real rough for you. But yeah, it's it's the cost, it's the death, right? If you want to carry that cross, you got to understand you got to die. There's a death involved, and it's the death of self. And if you're not ready to die that death of self, and part of that process is in the disciple-making, right? We've got to die to self. Yeah, when you look at that specific work of Bonhoeffer, you can look at several things. You can look at uh, life together, go back to fellowship, community, unity, what you're talking about second day. But when you look at costly grace versus cheap grace, which is his main thesis at the beginning of the cost of discipleship, it's the difference between an easy believism and a life completely surrendered to Jesus, right? So that's the difference in what he calls cheap grace versus costly grace. And so as a pastor, okay, I'm going to take it from my context, the question comes to me, what are we inviting people to, right? Are we inviting people toward a point of a decision, or are we inviting people into a new life? Now, the new life begins, totally believe we are saved by grace through faith alone. That's it, right? Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything Christ has done. But we are saved not just to a point of decision, we are saved into a life of new creation. That's costly. And when Bonhoeffer goes on through the rest of that book and he starts to unpack uh, the Sermon on the Mount and he starts to unpack what life in the kingdom of God actually looks like, then we're talking about costly grace, right? Because of what Jesus has done for us. And I think the American gospel, my brother over here, and I'm not pushing back against you at all, but when we start talking about a plan of salvation, we're talking about part of the gospel. We're talking about leading people to a place of decision, right? This is how you are saved. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. It's just incomplete. Because the idea of the biblical gospel leads us into a life of obedience. We always quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? I kind of just did a second ago. Remember, verse 10 follows that. We are saved by grace through faith, nothing by what we've done, but by the gift is the gift of God. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. How are we created in Christ Jesus? By grace through faith to do good works. We are to live out the salvation that we've experienced because of Christ, right? And so it's a more complete understanding of the gospel. That's what Bonhoeffer was going toward because the German church had leaned into easy believism and had been led astray by the Nazi party. And so our namesake in the Bonhoeffer Project, the reason we basically have co-opted his name is because he gathered small groups in his Confessing Church Seminary of pastors and ministry leaders around the biblical gospel that makes disciples who obey Jesus regardless of the cost. And when we start to understand that and we start to preach the biblical gospel like that, then we'll make disciples who live out that costly grace. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, from the cohort, from the training of implementing more of a discipleship culture into your church, how is that actualizing? So what, yeah. is, so what does a discipleship culture now look like in your church? And not so much from the pulpit, but Monday to Saturday, what is, right. what is discipleship culture? Yeah, the word, uh, yes, what, uh, kind of getting downstream a little bit, what is the practicality, what does it look like in a local congregation when, when the culture changes in your church to be a disciple-making culture, maybe from a programmatic culture or from a nothing culture or whatever, showing up attendance? For us, and I can only speak to us, though I know some of their stories as well, for us, 
it, it, the word holistic comes to mind. That everything we do now points toward a desired end. And that is, in our context, we use, we use the term a Christ-centered life. Okay? Why do we use that term? Because we believe that's what Christ is calling us to, to center everything we are around Him as the central part of how we live out our life, right? It's new creation in Him. And therefore, that's something we won't attain in this life, but it's something worthy to pursue. So then we build a plan around that big goal for our people. We want to give them something that is so big and so beautiful to pursue that, that anything that we say to them and put in place programmatically leads to that goal. Now, here's what that does to programs. Dan, Dan had talked about programs a little while ago. Here's what that does to programs, right? It makes programs expendable. When the vision of the church is bigger than the programs of the church, the church programs stop being the end and they become the means to reach the end. And if, I don't know what tribe you're from, but in our, our world, uh, they're what we call sacred cows, right? So how do you kill a sacred cow if it doesn't reach your goal? Two ways. You shoot it in the head or you let it wander off and starve. Shooting the sacred cow in the head releases some social capital. <laughs> You get, you get ready for the, the punch in the face, right, from those passionate about that sacred cow that doesn't make disciples. What we found with the sacred cows that wander off is there's usually only a couple people that are passionate about it anyway, and it'll wander off and eat a little grass over here, but it doesn't have any impact on our church at all, right? Now, those people are happy. We're trying to graft them back into this. What it's looked like for us in a church that's as old as ours has, uh, number one, it's what we said earlier, we started the revolution before we announced anything. We started grabbing some people that were like-minded. We started to help them grow in their walk. All of a sudden, on their own, as they're led by the Spirit, they go out and they start discipling other people. All of a sudden, our language started to change. Three years it took. After three years, our people started to repeat back the language to us that we have been saying ad nauseum to them. And all of a sudden... Um, we start to see programming change because after about three or four years, we announced the revolution. And here's what people said. Here's what people said. Oh, that's what we're doing. Because we had already been doing it, right? This past month was Pastor Appreciation Month, right? I don't know who started that. Praise God. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we had food trucks delivered to our church for our pastors. Just saying, don't be jealous. Pray about it. Um, the personnel committee at our church did a video for our worship service. They didn't tell me what was in it, so this was going to be really good or really bad, right? And here's what we saw, and this, this does speak to your point. I'm not just waxing uneloquent here. Um, they started to share about each one of our pastors on our staff. We have seven pastors on our staff. So they started sharing, lay people did start sharing about our pastors. Guess what word was brought up for every pastor? Thank you for discipling. Thank you for emphasizing discipleship. It was in every testimony across the board. And you know what? I My love language, whatever that means, is our words of appreciation. So I was soaking in the appreciation. But here's what made me like to jump out of my skin. The culture has changed. The culture has changed. Patience, time, intention, intentional goal, changing the way we get there is the feet on the ground. Sorry. We're going to take an offering off an invitation. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Did you want? Uh, Dan, you made a comment earlier. You said that um, that if you make disciples, you will 
always get a church, but if you try to build a church, you rarely get disciples or something right. like that. Yeah, correct. Um, and we're talking about from changing a culture or changing the headwaters for an existing church. Mm -hmm. From the Bonhoeffer's perspective, how do you do that in church planning? What are the, what are the structures that... Church planting? Is that yeah, what you said? Planning. Yes, church planting. Well, again, I don't know if we have a, a specific, because this all goes and boils down to the context of making disciples. And if that's in your individual calling or gift set to go then and start, to be honest with you, I think it's the best way to do it. Yeah. Because yeah. as you recognize, I, I wish my church 34 years ago would have started with the imperative of making disciples. Right. Because my job 34 years later would have been easier, right? Well, because most churches start out with a, we need a building. We need some more people in the seats. I need to re retain funding, right? It's And again, it's not that the goal isn't good, right? We want to build a church. We want people that love Jesus. It's great. But again, we're not investing in people. What you're doing, what a lot of people are looking for is the culture that we have, which is the, the, the diet pill culture. We want fast food. We want it quick. We want to take a pill. We don't want the hard work. But if you want to change an entire city, I'll give you an example. This, this is something that, that bugged me, and I hope it speaks to what we're talking about. Somebody, one of our, our worship team leaders came to me and said, hey, there's a new song I want to do. And it was a, a beautiful song. And she showed me the music video. And in this music video, I'm watching this arena. 20,000 people singing a song praising Jesus. And in this moment, I was grieved. And it wasn't because the song wasn't beautiful or it wasn't good or the words weren't right. But I'm looking at the city that that was happening in. And I said, there are 20,000 people proclaiming Jesus. Why is that city not different? What has happened where we can go into our context and our bubbles in churches, preach and praise and proclaim, but it never translates outside. It's because we have not begun started or carried on these churches with the idea of making disciples. We've, we've created church goers and we've created professionals at it. Like the guys that Jim was talking about, the guys always got the thing. Hey, wait, 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 this isn't how I remember. I'm in the middle of pivoting our culture. It is not easy. This will make some people say, I don't want to do this. I'm good. This is not for the faint of heart. But the work is soul work. It's heart work. It's Jesus' work. He didn't say it's going to be easy. He said it's going to be hard. But I'll tell you what, for church planning, I think it's the greatest thing you can do. I wish more church planners were working on something on the back end. We want to get more education institutions to recognize that they have missed the greatest opportunity in teaching young pastors in seminary. They forgot the discipleship component. And so you have all of these ministers going out without any just any tools in their belt to make disciples. You've got them created to make CEOs of churches. That's what we were talking about last session. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I love your question because I'm a church planner. I uh, moved from North Carolina to California six years ago to plant a church, and my church has been going for five years now. And um, so we started with the, the slogan, making disciples that make disciples. And it was during that process, before we ever launched it, I got connected with the Bonhoeffer Project. And uh, so, yeah, to answer your question, I think, like Dan said, I think that's that's the best place to do it. Um, and I'd say you start by discipling your launch team. Uh, if you have if you have a launch team, you start with them um, because that, that's what we did. We moved with a team from North Carolina, 
And in the beginning, it was like, all right, we're going to make disciples. Everybody was like, yeah, okay, how do we do that? <laughs> and so we had to wrestle with that and have some big conversations and a lot of work with our team. Uh, but that, that really enabled us to start with a culture that was already embedded in our church. And so, you know, when people walk into the door of our church, they, they kind of have an idea of what they're signing up for because it's already a part of our culture. We don't have to fight against it. I'm just lazy. I, you know, I, you guys that are in established churches, like I don't have the patience to do that. So I just moved across the country and started, you know, um, and just started from scratch. Disciple making's in there. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to talk with you and connect afterwards because those are my two favorite things, disciple making and, and church planning. So. All right, well, we got to wrap it up, so uh, let me pray and close this out. Father, thank you so much for this time. Bless each and every one who's here. God, uh, use them for your glory to continue to make disciples in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming. If you want to talk with any of us, we'll be out by the table. Thank you. Right, that was fantastic stuff from Dan and the Bonhoeffer team. Hope that you enjoyed that episode. I want to remind you, you can join the discipleship.org collective and watch shows and webinars and online stuff for free. Go to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free account. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening and have a great day.